Nathan Phelps goes by Nate. Um, Nate Phelps is the son of Pastor Fred Phelps of Westboro Baptist Church, which gained uh, infamy from their protests at Matthew Shepard's funeral and the funerals of soldiers around the U.S. Nate is the sixth of 13 children um, and was taught his father's extreme version of Calvinism from an early age. This uh, was accompanied by extreme physical punishment and abuse, dietary and health requirements, uh, and other extreme expectations. He left home at midnight on his 18th birthday and moved to California, where he built a new life away from his family. He later moved to Canada and only recently began speaking out about his story after a chance encounter with a reporter while driving a cab in Cranbrook, B.C. Nate has now spoken about his story to many groups around North America and even returned to his home in Topeka in 2010 to tell his story to the people in his hometown. He's a vocal LGBT advocate and the executive director at the Center for Inquiry in Calgary, where he now lives. Please join me in welcoming Nate Phelps. Thank you very much, folks. Uh, before I get started, I have a video here. It's uh, difficult to put in words the kind of character that uh, you're dealing with when you talk about my family, you talk about that campaign that they have. So rather than try to put it in words, there's a video here that does a pretty good job of giving you a sense of the kind of people they are. So we will get that going. Sermons in the Canada have to edit out 
every single word critical of fags. Sniff, sniff, sniff. Or the fag officials of Canada will arrest and criminally prosecute the Canadian affiliates and shut down their stations. There is no freedom of speech in Canada. There is no freedom of religion in Canada. It is against the law to read the Bible in Canada. As Leviticus 18.22 Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. We know our churches have a lot of bad feelings with those demon-possessed Canadians. The Canadian flag flies in our church upside down. The international symbol of distress. We fly day and night to educate and warn people about the faggy Nazi regime just to the north of us. Canadians are afraid of their tyrannical, fag-run government. You can determine for yourself about Canada and keep as far away from them as you can. You might end up decapitated. Like the young man yesterday who took a nap on a Greyhound bus near Winnipeg and went out to find his head being literally cut off with a big butcher knife by the passenger sitting right next to it. Canadians. The roof wall had broken down in fag-run Canada. Rather than help the 18-year-old boy as his head was being cut off, the 37 cowardly Canadian passengers scrambled off that bus like scared rabbits, leaving the boy to his fate at the hands of another typical lawless, fag-enabling Canadian. The lazy, cowardly, royal Canadian mounted police showed up late, and there at the back of the bus stood the Canadian murderer, bloody head in one hand, and bloody knife in the other. Remember, this bloody beheading took place just yesterday, Wednesday, July the 30th. Read about in the Canadian press. God hates Canada. Indeed, Canada are men that carry tails to shed blood. Ezekiel 22 9. Old Canada, land of the Sodomite damned. Amen. Timely topical Bible commentary. GodHatesFags.com, GodHatesAmerica.com, and PreStraightBoys.com. We're fascinated with you. Well, I mean, uh, how, how am I going to talk that? <laughs> and that, folks, is where I got my first understanding of how the world is from that wellspring of wisdom. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, first, I'd like to just talk to you a little bit about the theology of uh, that I grew up with there in, in the Westboro Baptist Church. 
Uh, it was the Calvin, Calvinism. I don't know how much you folks are aware of that. It's a very extreme version of Protestantism. Um, Calvin used the acronym TULIP to define the basic tenets of, of uh, his theology. Uh, at the cornerstone of the theology is this idea of absolute predestination. Uh, the T in TULIP talks about total depravity. There's this whole idea of, uh, of original sin that uh, the entire Adamic race is cursed, is by nature evil. Uh, uh, absolute predestination talks about the idea that uh, in a, the council halls of eternity past, this all-knowing, all-powerful God decided for himself who would be uh, saved and who would be condemned. There was no uh, nothing to do with whether a person was good in, in life. It was simply God's choosing and so you had a situation there where it didn't matter really what folks did, the choices they made in their lives. Uh, they were literally puppets of this tyrannical, angry God. And although they had not made the decisions or the choices that put them in hell, they were punished for eternity because God had made that decision for them. My father spent a lot of time talking about this idea that we had to be separated from the rest of the world. There was this us versus them mentality that was very prevalent as we grew up there. Uh, he also spent a tremendous amount of time identifying for us from the time, we, literally from the day we were born. You know, every Sunday we were in church for three hours listening to him preach. And he would identify the, the ideas that existed out there at the time, you know, the, the various religions, any new ideas that came along, he would and he would tear them down based on his understanding or his theology, his, his way of viewing the Bible. And he taught us that the very process of reasoning, of, of thinking about the, uh, the ideas that were out there and making decisions for ourselves, if it didn't align with the ideas that he had about who God was, then the very act of reasoning was a defiance towards God. So that was something, you know, when I grew into my uh, adult years that I had to it took a tremendous amount of effort for me to overcome that um, anxiety that you know to even think about the possibility that there were other ways of looking of looking at life and looking at humanity uh, I was making God angry for doing that so so we spent a lot of time tearing down other other people's beliefs and in that process, there was uh, he, he fine-tuned and developed this idea of, of attacking the people personally. And that's what we grew up understanding was uh, the nature of, of argument, a necessity in arguing. In fact, when I attended college, I took a class in logic, and they talked about the, uh, the various uh, logical fallacies. And it took me weeks to get my mind around this idea that there was a fallacy called ad hominem because it didn't make sense in my mind. I thought that's the way you argued, you attacked the person. So there was all of these belief systems or ideas that, that I had grown up with that literally had to peel away layer after layer throughout my lifetime. Uh, 
one of the other aspects of his theology is that it kind of touches on the idea of absolute predestination is that um, we don't make the decision of whether or not we're saved. God makes that decision. So when he's out there preaching, he does not care if he converts anybody. You know, generally speaking, you hear preachers behind the pulpit and, and they are their, their objective is to bear fruit, is to bring people to Christ, to change their lives. My father thought that that was ridiculous because that was God's decision. His job was to just put the word out there, to basically put the cup to the, to the people's lips, that kind of thinking. So uh, he actually was in California at one point and uh, was on a talk show there on the radio and there was a Christian apologist named Rich Bueller and Bueller had, had uh, challenged him saying, you know, what are your fruits? What have you uh, produced with your preaching? And my father defiantly said to him, that's not the test. The test is fidelity of preaching. All we have to do is preach and not worry about whether there's any results. And when Bueller said, well, what about the passage that says you will know them by their fruits? And uh, my father uttered this profound debate-ending rhetoric that is the cornerstone of their, their campaign. And he told Rich, he said, well, Rich, you're just wrong. <laughs> he spent a lot of time in the Old Testament, as you can imagine. He kind of imagined himself over the years. He, he uh, nurtured this idea that he was... Uh, a modern-day Old Testament prophet, the last of his kind. And so you hear a lot of that kind of uh, angry, hateful rhetoric that you see uh, throughout the Old Testament. And from that have come quite a few pretty bizarre ideas, even for their theology, one of which is that they believe uh, that none of them are ever going to die. They think that, that to die is a judgment from God. And my father, from the time I was very little, he was looking in the Bible and he was trying to figure out exactly when Christ was supposed to return and doing the math in his head and, and had, has convinced himself that he can survive long enough for Christ to return. So now, I mean, they're not real out front with it, but I've heard and having lived there for all those years, can read between the lines, and they have they've put it out there that, that they believe that uh, sometime in July, around the 21st of July of this year, that uh, Christ is going to return and the thousand-year judgment is going to begin on the earth. The logic behind that is that uh, they believe that President Obama is the Antichrist. <laughs> <laughs> And that he gets 42 months to reign before he's uh, dethroned. I think the, the uh, Old Testament or Revelation talks about a, a great wound to the head. Uh, and then they're going to get taken up into heaven. So this is the kind of stuff, when you have a closed system like that, you know, you kind of get this, uh, what I call a intellectual inbreeding. No, no new ideas, no new uh, blood can get into that situation. And so you end up with these distorted, twisted uh, ideas that 
become reality for the people in that environment. He personalized God's wrath. He was, over the years, um, became very, uh, more and more angry at, at the world. He was convinced that uh, that was his role, was to judge the world. He, uh, it got to the point when I was younger that I couldn't really tell the difference in my mind between God and my father because that was the image that I had of God was this angry, red-faced, uh, screaming preacher. They had a, uh, a mural up at, in the Capitol building in, in Topeka there of uh, the uh, famous abolitionist John Brown. You can see it on the internet. This, anyway, he's standing on this battlefield. His foot's on the head of a, of a soldier from the north, and, and there's a soldier laying head to head with him from the south, and he's got a Bible in one hand and his, his crazy eyes and his hair all over the place. And I always thought that, every time I saw that, it reminded me of my father because it was that kind of intense, uh, hateful anger at the world. Throughout that whole process, when I was growing up there, I was constantly looking at the, the, uh, the evidence around me. You know, as a young kid, you kind of are simplistic in your thinking, and I remember thinking, you know, if, if we are these special chosen people, you know, what's the evidence? I expected there to be a halo or you know, some kind of physical manifestation, certainly some kind of manifestation in the way we were as humans. And for me, that meant the way we treated other humans. And the difference I saw was actually the opposite direction. I saw him uh, hateful and cruel and deliberately unkind to uh, his fellow man. And that didn't make sense to me. But as a child, you also view the world through your parents' eyes. So it wasn't as though I was turning my back on what my father was saying. It just was creating a lot of conflict. And there was something in me that said, this doesn't make sense. So I'm at odds with my father. And in that environment where there was absolutely no tolerance for... Uh, disbelief, no tolerance for trying to come up with maybe another way of looking at at the Bible. Uh, we ended up with a lot of conflict between my father and I because of that. He talked a lot about the original sin, as I mentioned. He talked about, uh, you know, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Uh, so we grew up with this idea that there was something inherently wrong with us that needed to be fixed. But the only we had no way of knowing for sure whether we had received God's salvation because we didn't get to make that decision. So you're kind of constantly searching the environment, searching your mind, literally, you know, what was that feeling that I had, this kind of thing, because you didn't know whether you were saved. So I know today that, that what's going on with these people is they live in this constant fear that they're not measuring up or that maybe that feeling that they had when they announced their salvation wasn't real. So, it kind of makes people a little bit crazy. But at the same time, you have this sense that was very prevalent uh, in Calvin's times that um, there's something very special and unique about you. You know, Calvin created this kind of theocracy in, in I think it was Geneva, and was had, had 
had gotten to the point where he was actually willing to kill people that didn't meet this uh, standard that he had established for uh, his theocracy there. So saw a lot of that. Saw a lot of that there as well. Um, as a young child, I remember there was a lot of uh, visual images available to us. I remember a book where they had this really dramatic uh, interpretation of Noah's Ark. You know, people are clinging to rocks. They have their little baby they're lifting up trying to get Noah to take the child onto the ark. And Noah's standing up there implacably, you know, with this long flowing hair and, and the look of judgment in his eyes. These were the kind of images we had, the value of human life. That's what I remember thinking when I was looking at that picture. I was fascinated with that picture. Was life, human life was expendable. It was, you know, we deserved this kind of judgment from, from God. In, the, in 1991, my father led the church there on a... Uh, picketing campaign against gays there in Topeka at a, at a park called Gage Park. It was a popular gathering space for the gay community. And they came out with those signs and immediately the community reacted with outrage. Not so much because they didn't necessarily agree with the idea, but because my family could be so antagonistic and so cruel. And it became a very personal uh, battle for some of the leaders of Topeka there. Um, as they tried to quell this campaign in the early stages. But 11 of my 12 siblings are attorneys, as was my father at the time, and they fought back. And so early on there was some little bit of national attention, but primarily it was a local, a regional situation. and basically set the stage for what was to happen down the line. Uh, I, I'm not sure of the exact year, but when Matthew Shepard died, as we've talked about today, uh, my father decided it would be a good idea to, to go there and protest because it had such international media attention. So they went there and got the kind of attention that they wanted. And from that decided it was a good idea to start picketing at the uh, other funerals because it got a lot of attention. In those early years, the focus of those pickets was on uh, members of the gay community who were well-known and who had, had died, often of AIDS. Um, interestingly enough, they didn't get as much media attention as they had hoped for. There was some awareness of them out there, but it just wasn't at the level that he was looking for. Going back to uh, what it was like growing up back there, my father had decided at some point he was selling life insurance, he was selling vacuums, and he was selling uh, baby baby buggies, and the kids kept coming, so he decided he needed another way to earn an income, so he went back to law school, and the demands of law school, as well as having you know 13 kids and a wife, he started taking... Um, prescription amphetamines and, and barbiturates. And that period of our life became very violent. We were kept from the house most of the time just to keep it quiet because anything would set him off. When we were in the house, we couldn't use the doors. We had to go through the windows so that we weren't making any noise. 
Um, he would snap at anything and lash out at one of the kids or at uh, our mother. So anyway, as that's going on, he still managed to get through law school and started his law career, and about two years into it, found himself in trouble with the law because of uh, commingling funds from one of his clients. So he was suspended for two years from practicing law, and we had no way to make an, uh, bring in an income. So he hit on the idea of sending the kids out to sell candy, ostensibly for to buy a, a new piano for the church. But, you know, after one year and then two years passed, folks started asking us, hadn't we bought that piano yet? <laughs> so we had to come up with different stories. And we ended up selling candy for about, I believe, of seven or eight years and became masters at it. When, when Topeka got tired of us, we went to the outlying towns. And then we went further and, you know, all the way up into uh, Nebraska and down into Oklahoma. And we discovered at some point in that process that that if we sold candy at the right hour of the day in the in the bars, that we could make some pretty good bank. So, you know, we're talking about kids at that point. I think I was 11, 12 years old. So we're sneaking into these bars selling candy. And, you know, over here in this corner, there's a stripper performing. And that was pretty much the, the norm for us for most of those seven years that we were selling candy. So we would be there on a Saturday night in these bars selling, watching the strippers. Well, I mean selling. And, <laughs> and then we would be sitting in church the next day, and I'm scratching my head thinking, what kind of sense does this make? You know, even these evil people that are out there aren't behaving in this kind of conduct. It wasn't so much that um, I was upset with the uh, scenery, but I saw a lot of uh, hypocrisy in the way my father spoke and, and the uh, actions that he took and expected of us. Then a year after he was suspended, he um, we came home from school. It was, it was the anniversary, the first year, first anniversary of his suspension. Came home from school and found my mother in the uh, vestibule, the front area of the church. It's a small room and she was sitting in a chair and she was crying. My older brother Mark was there and he's trying to comfort her and she says to him, he cut my hair off and she pulled the stocking cap off and, and her hair, and she'd had this long dark hair and it was all chopped off. There were you know spots in her scalp where you could see the white of her scalp. And As it turns out, even though that was a very violent act, you know, most folks can look at that and say that's, that's not appropriate, there was uh, another layer of this for, for our family because our father had taught us constantly that from the, from the book of uh, First Corinthians that um, Paul talks about the hierarchy from God to Christ to man to woman and that uh, women showed their submission to their husbands and to, to God by wearing their hair long and keeping it covered. And my father had just determined that, that the word long should be uh, properly interpreted as uncut. So the rule in that church was that women were to never put scissors to their hair. So for us, 
that act was a clear communication from my father that that he had absolute power and authority over my, my mother's very salvation. So um, that was just a part of the reality that, that the women in, in that church were second-class citizens. And my father declared that you know, unrepentant. Uh, he, as far as he was concerned, the Bible made it clear that since Eve had been deceived by a snake, that she was uh, inferior to man and that she was to be in subjection to man. And implicit in that instruction was that the man had the, the right and the authority to bring her back into submission by every mean, whatever means necessary. If she uh, deviated from his expectations. It was a study of extremes growing up with my father. He... Uh, as well as the physical violence, he was, um, when he was going to law school, he had managed to put on over 100 pounds and ended up in the hospital. So his response to that was to start running. And within six months of starting running, he was training to run marathons. And he was requiring that of, of his kids and his, his wife as well. Wasn't happy with how fast he was losing weight, so he read a book about fasting. And the next thing you knew, he was trying his hand at that, had a few false starts, and at one point actually ended up fasting for over 50 days. No calories, just drinking water. And then he required that of several of the kids as well. So that was the kind of extremes that we were dealing with growing up in that situation. And all of this stuff, it wasn't so much that it was going on constantly, but it was that it was unreliable. You never knew when it was going to happen. And so it created this really dangerous, toxic environment for the kids growing up there. And years later, talking to a counselor about it, I ended up getting diagnosed with PTSD because that's the kind of environment that that um, is necessary for, for those kind of symptoms to come out in, in humans. So, As we grew into our teen years, uh, he made it clear to us that we were expected to stay under his thumb even after we were married. He had absolute control over every aspect of our lives. He found a passage in the Old Testament that said uh, something about uh, leaving your father and mother to cleave to your wife. So from that, he concluded that we couldn't leave prior to getting married. And then he had the authority as our father and as our pastor to determine whether or not the person that we had picked was suitable to be married to. So whether we were married or single, he had absolute authority and control over us took it further than that and said that everybody had to go to college and then had to go to law school and then had to work in his law office. So all of this stuff is going on. I'm questioning the, the, uh, the message that he's putting out there. I'm in constant conflict with him. And then my brother, my older brother left when I was about 16. And for the first time, I realized that was a possibility. Up to that point, you just felt trapped in that situation. He managed to stay gone. So when I was 16, I made the decision that I was going to leave as well. But I knew from growing up in that situation that because there was no trust, because there was a lot of deceit, um, I couldn't let anybody know about it. I couldn't talk to my mother about it. I couldn't talk to any of my siblings. When my father asked me if I was going to leave, I lied. 
found um, an old used Rambler Classic and bought it and hid it, parked it around the corner and had to move it constantly so no one knew that I owned it. Started packing my things and hiding those boxes in the garage. And then on the night of my 18th birthday, about 10.30 at night, everybody was asleep and I went and got the car back and into the driveway, loaded the boxes in. And I went down, back down into the house and sat or stood at the uh, bottom of the stairs and watched their clock in our kitchen roll around to midnight. And uh, when it hit midnight, I turned around and walked out and uh, haven't had anything to do with them since. Because one of the things he made clear to us was that if we left, we would be ostracized. And that was one of the most powerful tools that he used to keep the people in, in, under his control there. Again, using the, the uh, language of the Bible, he had convinced everyone that if they had anything to do with the people that had left, that they, would, they too would be kicked out and be ostracized themselves. So making that decision to leave on my 18th birthday, although I didn't necessarily believe he would follow through, um, I knew that that risk was there. When I left, I left with a certainty that I was going to die and go to hell. Um, there was a lot of talk about that God would, would find us and would punish us. And if we were lucky, the punishment would bring us back into the fold. But uh, if he wanted, he would actually destroy us. So it was an unusual situation for me because... On the one hand, much of what he had taught us I, I wasn't necessarily accepting. But on the other hand, I went away with this belief that all of these things that he had, had said about me and about so much of the world was true. And so I had to spend the majority of my adult life and continue to, in fact, ferret out these ideas that were in there that were basically hardwired into me and find, find out for myself what I believe, make my own decisions about life. And so this is the process I went through. I remember when uh, I got married and I remember discovering that uh, we were pregnant about a month after we got married and I had, I was shocked because I convinced myself that um, because I would left that God had, was going to punish me and wasn't going to allow me to have kids because that was one of the things that my father preached. That was one of the reasons he had so many kids because he saw children as a gift from God. So... The opposite for me was that I wasn't going to be able to have kids. So my response to finding out that I was pregnant was that God was now going to use that as a way to punish me by killing that child. So in July of 1987, when my, my oldest boy Tyler was born, it was about as close as I got to a miracle in my life. And then about 18 months later, my wife had twins. I found myself questioning the idea of miracles. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time over those years um, asking questions about the religious ideas that I grew up with. But I was also asking questions about so much of the ideas that flowed from that religion. And at the vanguard of my father's theology was this idea that homosexuality was the ultimate evil that was 
a sin that you could not recover from. He found some passage, I think, in Romans that says something about God gave them up. And so he convinced himself that there was a special class of evil, and that was the homosexuals. So when the issue of homosexuality and gay rights came to the fore in in, uh, the U.S. and here in Canada, it was uh, only natural that my father would would express his outrage at uh, the direction the country was going. And then he discovered, since he wasn't getting the kind of attention that he was looking for with the protesting at the funerals of gay people, he discovered that if he started protesting at the funerals of soldiers, now he was getting the media attention that he wanted. So he moved from one area of public interest to another, and the media attention just flourished for him. And his argument was that, again, back to this whole idea that Christ is coming, his argument was that he was only doing it because part of his job was to get the message of Christ's anger at the world out to every, every person on the earth. And that's a necessary prerequisite to Christ returning. So the more extreme he can be, the more attention he can get, the better off, the closer they get to that objective of having Christ return. They're kind of paving the way for, for Christ's return. So while all of this is going on, I'm getting some attention from the media here and there, but really wasn't interested in talking about it too much, although I had a, a strong need for, to help people understand what my, uh, you know, the nature of this campaign, the nature of these people, because I thought if people understood what was going on, who these people were, what, how this came to be, that it would, it would be a little easier for folks to take in what my family was doing, maybe uh, have a little more compassion for them. But I also still was carrying a lot of the, uh, the guilt and the uh, fear that I had, had left there with, and a lot of the fear was concerned that if I, if I challenged them, that they would come back and that I would start getting that same rhetoric, that same uh, language that I got when I was growing up there. And I just wasn't willing to face that because I didn't think I could, to be honest with you. One of the, one of the most um, destructive terms that I grew up with was that I was a rebel. That was intolerable, that idea that I was rebellious. And I struggled with that for years until I reached a point where I realized that confronted with this God, with these attributes, with this idea, this attitude, this treatment of other humans, that rebellion was the only moral option. So it's like I had to take that term, that that word away from them and get my power back. It was kind of the way that went. So that was a necessary step for me to take. And, um, had gotten pretty much to that point, and then in 2008, uh, as uh, Mickey mentioned, I was driving cab in, in uh, Cranbrook and picked up this college student, taking him out to the airport. And we were talking about, uh, he was a journalism student, and I was thinking about writing a book. And so we were talking about that subject. Somehow got to talking about the BBC. And I said I thought they were one of the more balanced sources of news. And he's and he counters that by saying, yeah, they did this piece on this little church in Topeka, Kansas. <laughs> and I said, oh, I know that church. 
And it was a really bizarre moment because he's sitting in the back seat and he goes like, what? So I had to take out my license and show it to him. And anyway, that led to about a four-hour interview, and he wrote a piece for the uh, University of British Columbia uh, College newspaper that ended up uh, getting, he got a re- an award for it, and it ended up getting like a half million hits. And suddenly people were asking me to talk. And I was at the right point at, at that point to say I was willing to do it. And so that led me into a very interesting series of events. I started speaking at a lot of uh, LGBT events and um, started meeting some really remarkable people. Because even though I had pretty much let go of the idea, as I let go of the idea of this extreme theology that I grew up with, I let go of the idea that it was okay to treat people, a certain group of people, different from other people. So at an intellectual level, I had already started letting go of the idea that that uh, the gay community was somehow evil, inherently evil. But I hadn't really developed that. I hadn't really fleshed it out. I, I didn't really own it at an emotional level, I guess, is the best way to put that. I met a gentleman when I was in uh, at one of these talks named uh, uh, the Reverend Brent Hawks. I think folks, some of you might be familiar with him. We had a long talk. He's the gentleman who uh, married couple of, uh, of uh, gay people in, I think, January of 2001 here in uh, Canada and started the ball rolling and ultimately got uh, the law passed to uh, allow gay marriage in Canada. An interesting part of that that I didn't realize until he was talking about it is when my family came up, I think it was the first time they came to Canada, and they were stopped at the border. They took their signs away because Canada has, you know, a more uh, well, they have a different attitude about hate speech. I guess is a fair way to put that. So they took their signs away. So my family got their hands on a bunch of Canadian flags, turned them upside down, and wrote their hateful messages on those, and continued with their their pickets. But they so outraged the community that that was one of the that was part of the impetus for finally moving that issue off center and getting people in Canada to agree to, to allow gays to, uh, to marry. So that was an interesting opportunity to meet him. And then I met a gentleman named uh, Cleve Jones, who was a, a contemporary and close friend and confidant of Howard, Harvey Milk. And he and I, it was, it was quite interesting, actually, we were in uh, Philadelphia. And he's coming down the escalator, and the guy is holding up two signs. One says Jones, and one says Phelps. And so he walks up, and he says, what does that mean? <laughs> and I'm coming up just behind him. I didn't know who he was at the time. So we had an interesting conversation on the way, and he turned around at one point and says, I can't believe I'm in a car with one of the Phelpses. <laughs> so we got an opportunity to talk quite a bit, and he told me a really interesting story among a lot of interesting stories that I got from people in the gay community. He was 17, and he was on the edge of ending it all because he was terrified about his sexuality. He was raised a Quaker and met this young man, and so they had contrived a way to, by, by offering to clean the church, that was their opportunity to get together and, and spend time with each other. 
And they have a leader in the Quaker community. They don't call them pastors. They're not leaders like we typically think, but more kind of the, the manager of the, the physical facilities, and they will kind of guide the services, but it's more of an egalitarian service. Anyway, she still looked up to, and they were uh, at the church. They had finished cleaning and were enjoying each other's company, shall we say. And she walked in on him. And he was terrified. And she didn't say anything for two or three weeks. And he was planning his suicide. Planning his death. And she walked up to him one day, several weeks later, at the church service and called him aside. And she said to him, she said, It's not who you love, but that you love. And in the future, would you please be more considerate of where you love? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty powerful story when you think about it, though. This gave this lad the the strength and the courage to go forward and do what he did later on in his life. He became a powerful voice for uh, LGBT rights. There was a gentleman I met down in South Carolina, in the heart of the South. They had started an organization called Alliance for Full Acceptance, a very vigorous, strong organization down there that was uh, working for equality for the gay community. And he had been a Catholic priest for, I think, 15 years and had left the, the priesthood and met it the man that he'd been with for, I think, 18 years at that point. And they were raising an, eight, an eight-year-old son at the, the time I met him. And this story was told over and over. I'm, I'm meeting uh, a gentleman who was part of the, uh, the mafia families in the Philadelphia area and grew up knowing that that was like the antithesis of the, uh, the macho Italian mafioso and terrified most of his life that he was, his father was going to find out. And finally, in his uh, early 40s, decided he was going to tell his father. And his father embraced him and accepted it. And he met the man that he ultimately has spent the last 20-some years with. He was in his late 60s when I met him. So all of these opportunities to meet these people, and suddenly I'm realizing that these people are me. There's no difference. There's the idea, the prejudices, the, the beliefs that I had grown up with were fading away. And yet, they're still having to deal with this kind of hateful rhetoric and ideas that exist out there in the community. I realized that they were, they were us. I don't know how many of you had the opportunity to see Hillary Clinton gave a talk to the UN, I think it was in December of last year. A remarkable talk. At one point she made the comment that this isn't a gay rights issue, it's a human rights issue. And this was the kind of thinking that I had as I was meeting more and more of the people in the community and understanding that really this focus on sexuality was misplaced but there really was no difference in the people in that community and the people in the heterosexual community. I know they talked a lot today about uh, gay suicide. I've accepted the idea that I'm a skeptic. 
you know, for years. That was considered, like I said, you know, if you think for yourself there's something wrong with you, you're, you're inherently evil and that kind of thing. So it took me a long time to embrace the idea that I'm, I'm skeptical about claims. I was skeptical about my father's claims, and I, I think that saved my life, literally. Uh, I don't know just how bad it really is when you try to compare suicides of the gay community versus the heterosexual community. Um, but I came to the conclusion that even one was too much when you consider the reason these people are killing themselves. It isn't really necessary to embrace the idea that there's too many of them to embrace the idea that we have to figure out a way to end it. When I was up in Edmonton about a year and a half ago, I was invited to speak up there because my family had threatened to come up and protest the production of the Laramie Project. And so they asked me to come and speak to the counter-protesters. And I got the opportunity to actually see the play. It's the first time I'd seen it. Um, by the way, they didn't show up. <coughs> So I'm watching the play, and near the end of the first act, it's the day, I believe, of the funeral. And there's a young Muslim woman, and she is she overhears some, a couple of locals talking about the remarkable amount of, of uh, media and, and the attention that they're getting. And she doesn't understand how something like this could happen, and we're not like that. And this, little, this young Muslim woman is kind of thinking out loud, processing this comment that she heard she concludes the first act by saying, yes, we are like that. And it got me thinking about it. And I was thinking, you know, we, we have this tendency to, you know, talk about loving the sinner and hating the sin. We talk about how, uh, you know, people nod their heads as the pastor says that God's, God loves everyone. We teach our kids that it's not okay to bully. And sit on committees trying to legislate behavior and yet the Matthew Shepherds keep dying out there. I think the problem is that although we have this tendency to try to make things better, we still have the subtle kind of osmosis of ideas that we're sending out to our kids and they're not stupid, they're picking up on it. So we're sending out two different sets of messages, and we're not really changing the hearts and minds of the people in, the, in this country, in Canada and in the United States. An example of that is, I was talking to one of the fellows that I work with yesterday, and was telling him that I was going to be coming down here to give a talk. He said, What's, who are you talking to? I said, it's the International Day Against Homophobia. And instantly he does kind of a limp wrist, and he goes, oh, what are you talking about that for? And I said, to try to end that kind of behavior. <laughs> because like that diagram that they showed earlier, it's those bias, that biased behavior that is just saturates our society. And that's the kind of stuff that people pick up on. And unless we challenge that, uh, it's just going to continue, and we're going to continue to see the end results, which is these young people killing themselves. Dr. King said it, talking, of course, about uh, civil rights at the time, but to paraphrase something he said, discrimination is a hellhound that continues to gnaw at the LGBT community in every waking moment of their lives to remind them that the lie of their inferiority is accepted as truth in the society dominating them. I 
think that's what we're fighting, folks. I think gay marriage is a great start in Canada. I think, if nothing else, it's done a wonderful job of pointing out the lies that are coming from the U.S. as they're fighting gay marriage down there. The anxiety and the threat that somehow the society is going to fall apart has proven to be just that. It's just a lie. Because Canada's had it now, what, for 10 years, 11 years? And we don't really have a society dying up here. So, But we still have the problem here in Canada. We, you know, I work for the Center for Inquiry up in Calgary. The Center for Inquiry in uh, Ottawa, I believe, is fighting a battle right now to try to get the uh, Catholic church system there to, to allow for uh, GSA clubs in that province. And we're having a pretty good success right now fighting them on that. It looks like we're going to ultimately win that battle. We also have the issue here in, in Alberta with Bill 44. They took the opportunity to finally codify equality for the gay community and slapped us in the face with it by adding that addendum that says that folks can opt out of training about gay issues if they if, if it's against their religion. So we still have a battle to fight here before there's equality in this country. Another 15-year-old boy took his life recently in Ottawa. In his uh, suicide note, he said he couldn't wait for it to get better. And we have that campaign, it gets better, but it's not enough. We need to keep working on that. Many in the gay community are not active. That's one of the things I've discovered in talking to a lot of people in the gay community is they almost wear it as a badge of honor that, they're, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't get involved in that kind of stuff. I just kind of live my life and I'm quiet. I don't go to the pride events. I don't, and I think that's a mistake because we're talking about a minority to begin with. And Hillary Clinton once again pointed out that when you're dealing with a minority, at some point you have to get a large percentage of the majority to stand up and fight for their rights as well if you're ever going to finally see change. We need more people in the, uh, in the gay community actually becoming activists and speaking out to try to change, turn the tide on this, on this issue. I want to point out to you, before I got involved with the Center for Inquiry, and now I work on the uh, board of directors for an organization called Recovering from Religion, that I lived with this idea that one person is not going to make a difference. And I sincerely believe that. I, you know, I just I saw it as hopeless. Two years into working with these organizations, I can tell you unequivocally that the efforts of one individual, if they stay focused on it, it doesn't have to be a lot. If you stay focused on it, it makes a difference. It's huge what, what difference you can make. If we can get five people in this crowd who are not active right now to get active, commit to spending an hour or two hours a week, that's the way we move in the direction to turn the tide to change this thing. People in the straight community. And I'm talking about things like when someone says something, something as simple as faggot, challenge them on it. Don't be rude. Don't be aggressive. But we can challenge them on it. We can be responsible. We can be respectful. But we can be intolerant of it. I'm suggesting that we become, each of us become a leader, but that we be wise about it. Listen more than we speak. 
but speak loud in the face of ignorance and hate. Above all, speak to a person's heart. Personalize it. That's where the change will start. There was a, a movie I saw. Some of you might have seen it called The Time to Kill. Um, it was about discrimination, race, racism down in the Deep South. Matthew McConaughey was the main character. A couple of uh, local white boys had uh, attacked, brutally attacked a young black girl. And then the father had retaliated by killing the two boys. Now he's on trial. And it has polarized this community. It's polarized the entire region. And he's trying to figure out how he's going to get this guy off. And he's standing in front of that jury. <coughs> and he tells them, he asks the jury to close their eyes. And then he starts retelling the story of this little girl's experience of them raping her, uh, brutalizing her, beating her, kicking her, bashing a beer bottle over her head, throwing her off the bridge. And this little broken body of this little girl with beer and blood and semen. And as he's telling this story, he's quiet and he's getting quieter and he's, he's reminding them to see that. He's asking them to look, visualize it in their mind. His voice gets quieter. He says, can you see that little girl? And then he pauses for five seconds or so. And he says, imagine she's white. And the tears started flowing. And you could tell that hearts had broken and he had gotten through to people finally. And that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about getting to the heart. We know scientifically now, if we can introduce science into this we know scientifically that the emotional part of our brain connects a split second before the intellectual part, the reasoning part. We have to get to the heart if we're going to change people's minds. I'd like to leave you with a, a quote that I just love from the British philosopher Bertrand Russell. He was interviewed late in his life. He was asked but he thought it was worth telling future generations about the life he lived and the lessons he'd learned. He said, I should like to say two things, one intellectual and one moral. The intellectual thing I should want to say is this. When you're studying any matter or considering any philosophy, ask yourself only what are the facts and what is the truth that the facts bear out. Never let yourself be diverted either by what you would like to believe or what you think would have beneficent social effect if it were believed. But look only and solely at what are the facts. That's the intellectual thing I should wish to say. The moral thing I should wish to say, I should say love is wise and hatred is foolish. Thank you very much, folks.